Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who wants to take my spare time to look at startups involving in deep tech. And in my spare time, I want to know what Entrepreneur First is doing in Singapore and the rest of Asia. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Alex Compton, the Managing Director of Entrepreneur First Singapore, to come on the show to have a conversation. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. It's interesting and I think Entrepreneur First have been a pretty interesting startup incubator. I understand it started in UK, which I have spent seven years of my life there in Cambridge. And of mm. course, you have a pretty interesting backer by the name of Reid Hoffman, which is mm. the executive chairman of LinkedIn. So I thought we're going to have a very interesting conversation to start off. Of course, Alex, I want to get to know you better. How did you start your career? Mm. So I had a kind of very windy route into early stage companies. So I actually studied philosophy at university. There isn't a lot of obvious next steps that come out of studying philosophy. I think it's an amazing thing which taught me a lot about kind of how to think. But it didn't give me a clear view of, kind of what I should do in the world. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do in the world, I guess. To me, I just decided to try and do the things that I saw the most ambitious people around me trying to do. So I did different jobs in some consultancies and I ended up working in finance, which is kind of what at the time everyone in London that I knew who really wanted to kind of do something really big would end up going into. And really quickly, actually, I realized that for me, finance wasn't where I wanted to be. I started meeting up with friends who were doing different things. And actually, I met up with my friend, Matt, who's the CEO of Entrepreneur First Now. And at the time I met up with him, I thought he was still at McKinsey, which is this management consultancy. And, you know, naturally, given the way that people thought about their careers at the time in the UK, I was like, well, if I don't want to be in finance, maybe I should be in management consulting. And so I met with Matt and it turns out he wasn't at McKinsey anymore. He'd started this thing called Entrepreneur First. I decided to quit my job and figure what I wanted to do. And that's when I joined EF, really not that deliberately, actually, in the beginning. It was just something while I figured out what I wanted. EF was very small. So we were actually a community interest company at the time. It was just Matt and Alice, the two founders. And then I kind of fell in love, I suppose, with what we are doing and the mission of the company and where I think it can go. And I think actually part of the reason that it resonated so much was because so many people's stories, I think, looked a little bit like mine where they were doing stuff, they were, you know, like working really hard, they were trying to make something that was big and important. But there wasn't really a channel for them to actually do that, uh, to actually unlock their potential. And I think EF can hopefully has been for many people, but can potentially be that channel for many, many people in the future. Yeah, my career was really roundabout until I got here. And then since then, actually, I think I've been kind of working on that mission of helping people unlock their potential. And I think you know, early stage companies are not for everyone, but for some people, it's really the only way that they can do something that's really, really important. What brought you to Asia? I know it's through EF, but what was the curiosity? Was it due to curiosity or was it just due to necessity that you moved to Asia to set up EF in Singapore? Interesting. I, I'd actually think it was like, at the time, it was more just a sense of opportunity. So when I left for Singapore, which was actually two and a half years ago, a bit more now actually. EF was still very small in the UK. So we were midway through our fifth cohort. The team was only about 10 people, including me. So it really wasn't obvious yet that the model had the potential to become really, really big. We were just starting to see some early results, but you know, it wasn't the companies that we worked with and hadn't started to mature yet. And so it just wasn't obvious that it was going to be really successful. 
However, some of our early investors were actually from Singapore and they were like, hey, I think this could work here. You should come and check it out. And we did. And really, there's just a massive sense of opportunity, which is, I think, now really obvious in hindsight to many people in Europe that, you know, Asia is is going to be increasingly important in lots of different ways in the future. But at the time for us, it wasn't as if it was, you know, the perfect time for EF to expand. It's just this, I suppose, like sense that if we didn't seize that opportunity, then it might go away. You know, we took a few trips to Singapore and we met loads of amazing people. The fundamental, like, I guess, scarce resource for EF as a company to work is amazingly talented individuals who want to do something big with their lives. And actually, I think Singapore is, you know, when we came out here, it felt like there were lots and lots of amazingly talented individuals. And there were, I suppose, like fewer options for them. It was almost like the smarter you are in Singapore, the more traditional your career looks, the more channeled your career looks. We felt that being here was a really huge opportunity to hopefully give really ambitious and really smart people in Singapore alternative option and an access point into building companies. So given that you have a pretty non-linear path in your career journey, what are the kind of interesting lessons you can share with my audience? I think there was a really interesting post recently on, I don't know if you've heard of 80,000 Hours. It's this uh, amazing organization which basically looks into how people have the most impact with their careers, particularly social impact, but they do a lot of research and a lot of, like I guess, research aggregation on what you can do depending on your area of focus. You know, if you want to help the world in some particular way, like how, what are the kind of career choices you might make that may, may enable you to do that. And one of the things that I thought was most fascinating was some research that they sent out recently, which is over a large, a very large sample size for people who are genuinely undecided about an important decision, particularly things like changing jobs or starting companies. For people who were sitting on the fence, they did a study where they essentially decided for people by dice roll, which what they would do. If for the people who went along with the dice roll, the reported happiness kind of after the fact, so six months, 12 months, 18 months later, was way, way higher for the people who made the change. And I think for me, that has been the big lesson, I guess, for me, which is just that every time I think I felt like I was afraid of taking a really big risk with not that much information. Every time I was undecided enough that it kind of came down to a gut, gut decision, I've been really, really glad that I made it. And I think sometimes it's hard, especially in somewhere like Singapore, where there are a lot of different external pressures, family pressures, whatever. Sometimes it's hard for people to just go with what feels right to them and they can sit on the fence for a long time. But for me, the lesson has definitely been like, if it doesn't feel right, if I'm really grappling with a major decision, so just bias towards change, bias towards doing something new, bias towards really going out of my like area of comfort. Interesting perspective. I guess hindsight is always twenty twenty. <laughs> That's true. So today we are here to talk about the main topic, which is about Entrepreneur First, or we call EF. And I think it's a pretty interesting organization. It came from the United Kingdom. I want to start off by first understanding the organization. So can you describe the vision, mission, and the backstory of Entrepreneur First as a startup incubator? Yeah, sure. I think the vision for EF is is actually really different to traditional incubator, accelerator, or investor. And the reason is because EF isn't about taking things that already exist and helping them succeed. It's not about finding great companies and investing in them. What EF is about is about finding the world's best people and helping them unlock their potential. This kind of comes out of a historical fact. And the historical fact is just that throughout history, there have been extraordinary institutions which have allowed amazing people to unlock their potential. You know, maybe 50 years ago, there was something like 
you know, the government. I mean, Singapore is an extraordinary example of a small number of people's ability to create massive amounts of change through politics and government. Uh, government. Probably, you know, 20, 30 years ago, institutions like Harvard Business School or Goldman Sachs or whatever enabled really ambitious people to create vast amounts of change through financial services or you know, access to, you know, even becoming a manager. And our view is that the biggest change that has existed so far in human history is the change of the technology technological change that we're seeing now so if you look at someone like mark zuckerberg it's rather extraordinary that he went from being basically a normal if privileged person to maybe the most powerful human that has ever existed in terms of his ability to reach people and the impacts that he can actually have on their views and lives he did that in a very small amount of time and he did that with very few resources and so the fact that that person exists is i think a wake-up call for ambitious people around the world. And what it says is that, you know, maybe you shouldn't be a banker now, maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer, maybe you shouldn't be a doctor, maybe you shouldn't be whatever your society around you tells you should be. Maybe you should take advantage of the fact that with fewer resources than ever before, people can have more impact than ever before. And yet, despite the fact that that uh, is true, if you look at different societies, it kind of happens at very different rates. The Silicon Valley starting a company is very normal. In Singapore, for example, London certainly five or ten years ago, starting a company was not normal at all. Um, certainly not for the most ambitious people who had a lot of pressure to go into traditional careers. Our mission is to unlock the people who we believe could create enormous change, who could use technology to have a, a massive impact, but who might not do that, basically because of where they're from or the culture that they're from. And the way in which we do that is by making it much, much more accessible for them to actually try starting a company. So we fund people basically just to give it a go. We fund them before they have an idea necessarily. We fund them before they have a team. And we fund them in big groups. So we say, hey, here's 100 other people like you who are also really smart, who are also really ambitious, who want to do something great. And we'll give you some money, I think of it like a salary, to keep you going while you try starting stuff with them. And if you start something that's exciting with our guidance, then we will invest in it more like a traditional investor and help you uh, connect you to other investors who can support you in your journey. So it's really that foundational stage, that moment where you go from being a person to being, in, uh, to being a company that is our focus. And that's why I think you know, the mission and the vision for the company is so different. It's not about becoming the world's best investor by investing in the best companies. It's about really unlocking, we believe, many, many people around the world who could do something absolutely massive, but they just don't have the co-founder or they don't have the right idea or they don't have the access to the markets or investors that they need. So you're actually targeting right at the beginning, a stage where it's just the people and then towards where they form a right. startup and pretty much like a very seed stage situation. Yeah, even pre, it's, I mean, it's like pre-anything. So we, for example, would say, Hey Bernard, you have a stellar background, which is actually true. So we would talk to someone like you and we'd say, hey, you thought of starting a company? And if you have thought of starting a company, if you haven't thought of starting a company, we'd talk through what that might look like for you. And we'd say, well, you know, if you want to do it, you could try working with maybe one of your friends or someone that you know from work, but it's kind of hard to get them to quit at the same time. It's hard to know exactly if what you're going to work on is the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. And we'd say, well, do you risk a lot of that? by actually you know, providing you with money while you're, so you can quit your job, providing you with a pool of amazing potential co-founders who you can start stuff with, and you know, just allowing you to iterate in the same way that you know, a normal company would iterate through different products or different ideas. We allow you to iterate through different co-founders and, and different things that you want to work on. Yeah, it's pre-company. It's about saying to you as an individual, we will fund you, we will support you because of who you are. And that unlocks many, many more people to become founders. 
in the management team of Entrepreneur First, who are the founders and the key people driving its current state? Yeah, so we have really incredible team. So the two founders, Matt and Alice, they actually met, they're kind of, I suppose, have a similar story to what we're talking about where they met in a traditional career. So they met at McKinsey and they've since gone on to both set up EF or sort of also organizations like Code First Girls, which teaches many, many women to program in the UK. We have a few different teams. So we have Joe White, who's the co-founder of Moonfruit, who's our CFO, through to our venture partners. So some of the people that you might know in Singapore, people like Xiaoning, who set up Job Central. We have uh, Ad Ketelars, Tech Lantan, Tech Mofe, all who work with our portfolio companies, helping them, helping them grow and helping the founders. And then we have an amazing talent team whose job is basically to support the people that enter into uh, EF by finding them, you know, amazing other people like them. So really, I think at this point, we probably have the most, well, we definitely have the most experienced team at finding people who could be founders and getting them to actually take that first step. But we also have an amazing team who've been through lots of different stages of the journey themselves. And that's true both in uh, Singapore and, and London and uh, other locations as well. So when you take in the people uh, based on what they are, and do you actually have like a focus in which verticals that you would get them to go into? Like maybe consumer tech, deep tech or something? So we're mainly focused on deep tech, though we're kind of ambivalent as to whether that has like a consumer or a B2B application. The reason is really that because of our model, we're basically asking people to come up with something that they're going to work on within a short amount of time. That means that if you're starting from a, like a particular skill, so you know, if you can build something that other people can't build, or in some instances, if you, you know, have a particular domain, like you know an area really well that other people don't, so you, know, you have certain career experiences, that gives you a massive head start in figuring out what to work on. We call this you know, your, your edge. It's like your individual competitive advantage. Typically, that means that we create companies that either have some are based originally off some deep technical expertise or are based off some deep commercial insight. So if you were to look at our portfolio companies, for example, we have companies like Transcelestial in Singapore do Earth-to-space laser communication, so increasing data transfer rates using lasers. That was started by the CTO of that company has a background in photonics and really that's a great example of where it wasn't necessarily obvious to him when he was at university and doing research, etc. what that could turn into, but there's absolutely no way that he would have been able to build that company without having had that prior experience and expertise. So any other interesting companies or alumni companies that have emerged in EF that was successful? We have a variety of companies at different stages. So um, most of the portfolio is still quite young, so a few years old. We have had several exits at this point. So sort of most well-known of which was Magic Pony Technology, which was sold actually 18 months after it was founded to Twitter for 150 million US. We also have Prizio slash Represent, which has exited, as well as Avocara and a few others. That said, I think our best companies are sort of still in the portfolio. So companies like Tractable in the UK are doing extremely well, really excited about those guys, I think they're incredible founders. And similarly in Singapore, we have a bunch of companies which are emerging, which are doing really, really well. So SensorFlow is an example, Transcelestial, I mentioned a bunch from the second cohort, like Invol and Hertzwell and Podcast are continuing to do really well. So I think, you know, in the 
exits that we've seen so far are a very small fraction of the most exciting companies that we've produced. What is your current role and coverage within EF itself? So I run our Singapore office. At the moment, we also support the Hong Kong office as well. And so essentially my role is to make sure that we keep growing really, really fast. So it's actually quite extraordinary how we've grown over the last couple of years. So when I first came to Singapore, about 100 just started. So about 100 people every six months were doing EF. I think we're now up to a throughput of something in the region of 300 people, soon to be 500 people around the world starting EF every six months. That kind of growth, obviously, it's really important that you do it in the right way. So it's not you have to make sure that the all the, a huge amount of our value comes from having great people, and so you have to make sure that you know, the quality of the people that you're getting is really high, and well as that the company is growing. What would be the metrics that you would use to evaluate if EF is going to be successful in three years' time? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the first thing is just that there's a difference between, I guess, EF and the EF model. So when we started in London, basically all accelerators looked something like YC. So YC was is the kind of you know the best accelerator in the world and they have been for a long time. And I guess people were doing kind of like lots of variations of YC. And you know you saw this in Singapore as well where it's like the Singapore government basically is having in lots of different places in the world like looked at what was working in Silicon Valley and they tried to replicate that. So we have like lots of different incentive schemes for angel investors or for VC funds, for incubators, accelerators, and so forth. But the challenge is like none of the, all of those things, in my opinion, at least, were the consequences of great people starting companies. As in, why are there so many great investors in Silicon Valley? Why, why is YC so successful? It's because the best founders go to YC. It's because the best founders start companies in Silicon Valley. Really, that's where, for me, the EF model has the potential. If, if the EF model is successful, it will change the way that people think about that completely. Because my belief is that Actually, in many, many places, maybe even in the Silicon Valley, you can get way better companies and way better founders if you just systematize the process of how people meet each other. If you just systematize the process of how the best people can access starting a company. You know, the EF model of taking individuals rather than companies is becoming more and more widely accepted as something that's exciting. We have lots of clones and lots of copycats popping up at the moment. If the EF model is kind of mainstream in three years' time, I think that will mean that we've done something that's really important. For EF specifically, obviously, we want to build enormous companies. I think for us, the exciting thing is that I genuinely believe in 10 years, it will be insane to start a company the normal way. Why would you sort of like, if you wanted to meet a new partner now, would you go to a bar or would you use you know, online dating, there's just more efficient ways to do things. And I think yes, that. But in the short term, we have to prove that by building companies that are truly, truly massive. So right now, the biggest companies in the EF portfolio are in the kind of hundreds of millions of dollars range. And as the portfolio matures over the next kind of few years, certainly in three years, the onus is on us to show that you can create not just, you know, hundred million, half billion dollar companies, but billion dollar and decabillion dollar companies through this model. How does EF operate as an incubator? I understand you actually have to bring the people in. They are talent. Yeah. They're probably skilled with a certain set of superpowers, I would call them. How much yeah. investment then EF will provide in the startups if they become successful? We fund each person as an individual with $5,000 a month for three months. So that is basically allows them to try working with different people, working on different stuff. If they find someone that they want to keep working with and we want to invest in them, we invest another $75,000 Singapore dollars to get them through the next few months while we help them fundraise. It's $5,000 for three months per person. 
And then we invest seventy five thousand dollars into the companies if they find a co-founder through EF and if they build a company that we think is exciting. What is in the selection process then bring the entrepreneurs into the program then? The selection process is a is a really interesting question because people always ask us what is it that makes a great founder? And I actually think the answer is often really disappointing. And that's because the hard bit is not coming up with like new traits that people haven't thought of before. It's assessing them at the kind of scale and speed that you would need to filter through many, many different people. So, you know, it's not surprising that the best founders are really determined. It's not surprising that the best founders are really smart. It's not surprising that the best, best founders have special skill sets or are able to persuade people, et cetera, et cetera. All these qualities that we've had talked about many, many times. The hard thing is how do you actually assess that in a scalable way so that you can pick out you know, the best people from thousands of applications without putting them through a process which the best people don't want to go through. Our interview process looks relatively straightforward. There's an online application. If you pass the online application, depending on your answers, we may ask you to fill out a couple more details. And then you have an interview with someone from our team and we use the data processes that we've had from now working with more than a thousand different founders and tens of thousands of applications to figure out if you are the kind of person that tends to succeed at EF. So it's a form of actually indexing them and figuring out what traits that will make it work. Then what would be the signals then you would look out for to select these founders into EF then? I don't think the signals are like a secret. So the best founders in the EF portfolio are really smart, really committed, really ambitious, and uh, unusually skilled. There are obviously kind of like subsets of this that we think are kind of interesting. One of them, for example, is something we call personal exceptionalism. There's a trait that certain people have where they think that on a meta level, they are kind of special in the world so that, you know, the rules don't apply to them or the statistics don't apply to them. If you tell them that one in a hundred people make it, they rationally believe that 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 one in a hundred. And so there are certain kind of nuances to these ideas that we also look for. But yeah, I mean, like the traits that make great founders, I think are well understood. The really hard thing is how do you assess them and how do you figure out, how do you benchmark people against each other? One thing I'm pretty interested is how do you help these entrepreneurs when they select it into your program? They're going to cope with things like meeting co-founders and then mm. they might even experience things like breakup. They might even yeah. experience problems in trying to find the right product market fit because it's in such an early stage of the situation. 100%. This is one of the things I think is so fascinating. So the, the breakup thing that you mentioned is a great example. I think the single biggest thing that we can do for the founders that come into EF is to help them adjust their mindset and adjust culturally to a bunch of new norms. So for example, breakups are a really big part of the first three months at EF. So often the first team, almost always the first team that people get into is not the best team for them, right? You know, if there's 100 people, how could you possibly figure out right off the bat who the best person for you is? The only way that you can solve that problem unless you can you know, search perfectly is to like, iterate through people. But breakups are kind of really weird thing to do, especially after a short amount of time. It's like, it feels like socially kind of awkward. And so a huge part of our job is to normalize things that feel strange and actually to celebrate them. So for example, like the first people, we, we have a norm that, you know, people are in teams by the end of the first week. Like we celebrate the first teams to break up. We have like a public channel on our communication tool that we use internally where breakups are posted and people like comment them and celebrate them. And so really like a huge part of what we do to help people succeed is to change their mindset towards behaviors that are likely to make them successful. The same thing is true 
Obviously, on the other side with things like how do you find product market fit? I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's no surprise that the natural bias that people have when they're figuring out what to work on is to often like ignore customer development and all of that kind of stuff. Our role really is to be, I suppose, like a mirror to them and their progress and to help them benchmark themselves against the other teams. One of the fascinating things, and I think you see this in YC, for example, is that when you have, imagine if you have a hundred really smart people running a race and you just show, show them how fast the other people are going in in what direction, then that is an amazingly useful tool to help them calibrate their performance. So if you have a hundred founders who are starting companies and they can see what everybody else is doing and they can see how fast they go and they can see how quickly they're getting customers and how they're doing it, that's an amazing asset for them to understand how they can improve and succeed on their own journey. And you know, given that we've worked with more than a thousand founders now, our job is to make the information and the history and the data that's available from previous cohorts available to people who are on the cohort today. Yeah, we help people in those two ways, really. One is to set great cultural norms that enable them to succeed when they're counterintuitive. Two is to help them calibrate their performance against other people and to support them to do the right thing through both a combination of mentorship and also providing information to them about how, how well they do. There are actually many other incubators as, such as Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 Startups, which you also alluded to that they have a different thesis from what mm. you're doing. What mm. is your competitive advantage and where do you see you distinguish away from them other than the talent aspect? Well, I think for me, the talent aspect is kind of the most important thing of all. And that's really where our focus is. And the reason is, if you look at why, we, why Y Combinator has been so successful, it's been so successful basically because they are operating in a space where they, which is basically venture capital, but where they have managed to remove the constraints that prevent venture capital from being monopolized. So typically a VC fund will have partner bandwidth constraints that they can't invest in a bunch of different companies, they, uh, as in hundreds of companies, they can't invest in um, investors, so forth, so on and so forth. YC just kind of deleted these constraints from that category. And so they have, you know, if you look at the um, returns that accelerate back companies have got, YC has an almost total monopoly on the market cap of accelerate back companies. And so really, I think what that reflects is not that YC knows some special magic that Techstars or 500 Startups or anybody else doesn't know. It's not that their advice is different. It's not that there is something, some special information in their heads. It's that the very best founders who want to do accelerators go to YC. My view is that actually the hard thing is that you can only go to YC and increasingly only go to YC when you're at a certain stage of development. So if you're working in a job right now, you're really smart, you're really determined to want to do something, but you don't know anyone maybe you're in a place where startup companies are very normal and you're not sure exactly what you would do how do you how do you get into yc how do you access that it's just not possible and so you know what yc is for companies i think there is no equivalent for that at the individual level right now there's nothing that allows an individual person to access the opportunity probably something like harvard business school was that for finance right as in if you can get into harvard business school or you know INSEAD or whatever it is then that can be a transformational life experience for you as an individual but like, what is that for startups right now? There's nothing that is accessible for individuals. So for us, the massive competitive advantage versus someone like YC or Techstars or 500, you know, any of these other accelerators is that really we are accessible to individual people because of their brilliance. And that just unlocks so many 
opportunities that didn't exist. So this is philosophically pretty interesting. And given you are a philosophy student, so <laughs> what Y Combinator has done has now become something like the Harvard Business School for Startups. And I guess this is also what's happening in a world where startups are now being the hip and the most sexy thing to do. And going into these programs are sort of like going to a McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. I mean, wouldn't that breed elitism in the longer run? And if you are in the agreement that entrepreneurs are everywhere, wouldn't there be something like an equality that actually that anybody can start from anywhere? They don't need to be in these programs to get there. Yeah, so I think I think there's a really interesting point there, which is I suppose two things. One is that I don't think that everyone can be an entrepreneur. It's not as if there's like a large section of the or an entrepreneur in the sense of starting like a billion dollar company. It's not as if there's a very you know, double-digit percentage of the population that I believe will do that. But rather, I do believe that a lot of the best founders are probably not in Silicon Valley. And so what it suggests is that you know, there is a network effect, there is an advantage to being in those places right now. And I think for us, my goal, I suppose, would be that in a way, if you democratize, if you make accessible the opportunity of starting a company, if you make accessible the opportunity of reaching the world's best capital, then I think very quickly you'll start to see that people do beat Silicon. The Silicon Valley has a lot of drawbacks, which maybe are becoming more apparent. You know, one of the things that's been fascinating in the UK has been seeing how machine learning companies have progressed. So um, one of our investors, co-founders of DeepMind, and DeepMind was an artificial intelligence company that Google bought for about half a billion dollars. And I honestly don't believe that that company could have been built in San Francisco. And the reason is because the talent that was required to build that company was already you know, so, so too far expensive for any startup to hire. And the people that would have started that company were already working in jobs that would have prevented them from doing it. Yeah, my belief is that right now what we have is a situation which is probably not very meritocratic at all. But in a world where you are able to give, where you're able to give the very best people from Singapore, from Hong Kong, from from Paris, wherever it is, access to amazing co-founders and amazing investors, I think very soon we'll realize that the network effects that exist in Silicon Valley are maybe could be overtaken by the quality of talent in other places. But there are also other factors at work. For example, the market size. You could only see like very mega unicorns only in China other than the US. And there are more of them there. And then there are also other factors like having the teams that are able to scale in Silicon Valley. You have senior managers who would rotate between different startups and basically yeah. the company. So I think these factors also have a key in play. And I guess the thesis that you are trying to force is that it doesn't really matter whether these factors are there. The more key fundamental value is actually in the founders themselves in bringing out these companies. Am I right to say that? Yeah, I should, yeah. I mean, I do actually agree with you. And you know, one of the things that we, one of the things that we've seen that as our companies mature, they tend to have a base either in the US or in China. It's just. Like, as you said, market size, loads of reasons why that made sense for them. But that's a different thing to kind of where they get started. And I suppose maybe to clarify, I believe that great companies can be started by people from anywhere in the world if we get it right. But yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that they end there, right? It's hard to imagine getting a you know, truly enormous company that just serves Singapore because it's obviously a small place. But do I believe that you can get a truly enormous company that was started by so on from here, of course. Just one final question before I go to the closing. So does EF mm. have any plans to move upstream with investing into companies in later stages? We don't 
have any plans to invest in companies that don't get built at EF. We think that there are a bunch of great EF companies that we'd like to support in the long run. And we do have plans to continue to support them as they grow. But I don't think we want to invest in companies that are not EF companies. You know, there are amazing investors at C stage and at the accelerator stage and at Series A and Series B and so forth. We'd rather partner with them on EF companies than invest and them. Alex, many thanks for coming on the show and uh, this was a good conversation. So I w- in closing, I'd like to ask two questions. The first one is, can you just recommend both podcasts or anything else that has impact to your work and personal life recently? Probably, if I can, I'd recommend a community. So there's a community of people called Affected Altruists. And I think probably over the last sort of 10 years of my life, they have changed the way I've thought about many, many different things. And so there are books like Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill, which you can read, which you know, is essentially about if you want to help people, what are the ways in which you can think about doing that with your life? There's organizations like 80,000 Hours who are doing amazing work on how you can have a large impact with your careers. They do a really, really good podcast a newsletter. And there are also you know, a bunch of like really curious kind of intellectual offshoots of that. Uh, for example, there's a book called Early Retirement Extreme by I think Rand Fishkin, who has a kind of very well thought out and alternative perspective on how to manage your personal finances. And I just think that that kind of community of people has some of the most extreme, but also most interesting ideas that I've come across uh, over the last few years. So my last question, how did my audience find you? Well, the easiest way actually is just to, yeah, the easiest way to find me would just be to go on alexcrompton.com and it'll redirect to my medium, which has blog posts. To find EF, go to joinef.com, J-O-I-N-E-F.com. Yeah, if you have any questions, people can email me at alex at joinef.com. And you can find me at Bernard Leung or Google Me and you will know where to look for me. And you can find us on iTunes, Teacher SoundCloud, Acast and Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me. Uh, recommend us on Overcast with a star or Pocket Cast as well. Or even the best, give us a five star on iTunes. And that will actually help us in getting discovered. And once again, Alex, many thanks for coming on the show. Amazing. Thanks for having me.